Jesus says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And Father, we just ask now, help us as we open up the word of God together. We, Lord, as an act of worship, want to hear what your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of our hearts and lives in this room this morning through your living and powerful word that you have given to us as you said, to be profitable in our lives for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that as men and women of God, we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Lord, you know what it means to prepare each one of us, help us to be attentive and even desirous to want to hear and anticipate what you would say to us through this part of your word. Speak to us by your spirit's ministry and bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I think an important lesson to learn, certainly for those of us who are followers of Christ, is the following, that God is able to accomplish his work in a person's heart by the Holy Spirit alone. And when I say God is able to accomplish his work in a person's heart by the Holy Spirit alone, I mean, obviously, apart from us trying to force it to happen. And sometimes that's something as God's people with good intention and maybe sometimes maybe even a little bit of impatience in our lives or concern for someone we can become a little bit guilty of. We talk about playing the Holy Spirit in someone else's lives and and, and we don't do a very good job of that. Whether it's trying to lead someone into a relationship with Jesus Christ to see them get saved, whether it's trying to maybe uh, convince someone of some error that we see in their life or to even cause a Christian maybe to recognize some Something that they need to it's very important for us that we learn that God is able fully able to accomplish his work in a person's heart by the power and voice of his spirit apart from us trying to force it to happen in their lives and I think that's really one of the major lessons we see as we look at our text together this morning look with me in verse 5 where we pick up again Jesus is continuing in these lessons here these hours before He will now die upon the cross, speaking much about, as we said, the person of the Holy Spirit. We've learned so much already. But again, he says there in verse 5, but now I go away to him who sent me. So Jesus, again, he said it before, indicates that his ascension, or what we refer to as his return back into heaven, is something that is soon going to happen. Again, repeatedly, Jesus has indicated this thing that he is going to return back to the one who sent him. Of course, he's referring to how he was going to return back to the throne of God from which, very important, he originally came. And it's very important that we recognize this reality spiritually. Remember, Jesus, as God the Son, 
has always been eternally existent. He's always been eternally alive and existent there together in heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Bible teaches, was involved in the very process of creation itself. But yet at a set point, at a time, at a determined hour, Jesus, the Bible says, was sent by the Father to heaven. And of course, we know he was miraculously conceived by a miracle of God, miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin woman, so that he might be born of a virgin, being fully God and fully man. God took upon himself a second nature, the nature of humanity, adding humanity to his divinity. And Jesus came to live among us as a man, to reveal to us what God is like, that we might see what God truly is like by Jesus living among us as God in the flesh. And by his life and his words and his works, Jesus did many wonderful things by the power of God, teaching and healing and helping people but his ultimate mission of course was to then save the world from the punishment of sin and to save the world from the power of sin so jesus therefore as a man lived that righteous life sinless and perfect that you and i can't live as human beings fulfilled the righteous requirements of god to have access into heaven never failing and then gave his sinless innocent life as the substitute of the payment for the ransom, the debt of our sin, his holy, sinless, holy blood was what paid the price for our sin as Jesus died on our behalf. Dying in our place upon the cross as the substitute for the sin of the world, God putting the punishment of the wrath of God upon him. And then after Jesus died in our place, the Bible teaches he then rose from the dead the third day and after rising from the dead he then ascended or went back to heaven to the father the one who sent him back to the very throne of god and now lives there in heaven as lord and savior and whoever trusts him whoever comes to him and accepts his forgiveness as the savior and embraces his lordship can have eternal life well jesus's return back to heaven is often what we refer to as the ascension of Jesus, him going back to the one that sent him. In fact, Acts chapter 1 records the ascension of Jesus. It says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while he looked, they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, angels, standing by in white apparel, said to the men gathered, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven reminds us, and it's what he wants to describe here, though there are many benefits that come as the result of what Jesus did on the earth, there are also wonderful benefits that now exist and are available because of the fact that Jesus has gone back to the one who sent him back into heaven to be on the throne of God with the Father. And he wants to describe some of those advantages to his concerned disciples here in his words to them. So then again in verse 5, if you look with me, he goes on to say, I'm going back to the one who sent me, and yet none of you asks me, where are you going? But their problem, because I've said these things to you, Jesus said, sorrow has filled, the idea has overflowed your heart. So watch what happens here. The disciples are so fixated on what it appears that they're losing 
in Jesus' departure from them, remember, they had become so accustomed to having Jesus with them 24 hours a day. We can understand why it would be hard to accept him going away, but they're so fixated on what it appears they're losing in Jesus' departure, they're not able to recognize or to consider what they're about to gain, which is actually much better. And this is what Jesus is trying to say to them here. He's saying, instead of inquiring further about where I'm going and why I'm actually going there and what's the full purpose of me leaving now from earth and going back to heaven, rather, he says, because I just said I'm leaving you or going away, your heart is overflowing with such sorrow over the personal loss of my presence with you and what you've become so, so accustomed to and the circumstantial changes that that's going to bring in your life, you're missing seeing the benefits that are going to come out of this. So what Jesus is indicating here is how the disciples were so weighed down with grief and worry about, listen, things not remaining the same as they had always been in their life they could not consider something better was actually on the horizon for them. And they had become so accustomed to what they were used to, now fear and sadness about change is hindering them from seeing the benefits that would come as the result of that change that would soon happen. And sometimes, let's be honest, we struggle in our lives with the exact same kind of things. Sometimes for all of us, we realize maybe something we've grown so comfortable with, we're so used to it, we're so dependent upon it, it's been the same for so long, and now that's going to go away. And now it's going to change. And by God's sovereign plan and purposes, that very thing that we were so used to is now going to change, and perhaps it's a very big change that's about to take place. And when that change is on the horizon, sometimes our fear and grief about the change can actually sometimes paralyze us and paralyze us in a way where it hinders us from seeing the bigger picture of what God may be bringing with the change and what God may have intended and actually the benefits, the good things, the advantages that may come as the result of that change if we would just let God fulfill his purpose and overall thing that he's doing as his plan in our life. Well, this is what the disciples are wrestling with and Jesus wants to talk to them about. He says, verse 7 to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your, notice the word, advantage, this change. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So Jesus informs them that unless he goes away back into heaven, he says, unless that change happens, I cannot send the helper, the spirit of God to take my place to assist you spiritually in the ways that it will actually be advantageous to you even more than when I was with you here presently in a body of flesh. Unless that unwanted change happened, Jesus could not do for them what he wanted to do for them. Unless some change took place, the greater things that he had ahead for them and for the world were not able to come to pass. A transition and change, listen, a transition and change was necessary for the plan of God to be fulfilled. And sometimes that is the way that it works. Sometimes a transition or a change is necessary for God's plan to unfold, for God's plan to, listen, move forward, 
for the next step, the next season, the next thing that God has intended in his overall purposes and plans. And Jesus is saying to them, once this difficult change, yes, it's going to be difficult, but once this difficult change takes place, he's saying, you're going to see the advantages of it. You're going to experience the benefits that it will actually bring to you and to all those among you. He says to them here, verse 7, look at the text, it's to your advantage that I go away, he says. I know you don't want it to happen. It's difficult to adjust to, but this going away, this departure, this change, this transition, he says it's actually going to be to your advantage. The word advantage, when you look it up, means to have a superior position, a better condition, to gain or possess a benefit. Jesus' physical presence departing from earth and going to heaven was going to give a better position for them spiritually. It was going to give to them a superior experience. Him being seated at the throne of God and working there in conjunction with the Father from the throne in heaven was actually going to result in a better spiritual experience. What Jesus is saying to them here is, if you think my help has been good, why I've been here with you in the flesh, he says, just wait till you experience the assistance of the Spirit of God himself. When he's not only with you, but actually dwelling inside of you and working inside of your life and empowering you and working through you. He says to them here, for if I depart, I will send the helper to you. Now we've learned as we've seen so far in our studies together in this section, that term the helper is the favorite title it seems of Jesus when he refers to the person of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, how he was going to come after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And he was basically, in a lot of ways, going to take the place on earth of the presence and ministry of Jesus, of what Jesus had been doing. He, another helper, another of the same kind, not a different kind, but another of the same kind, the third person of the Godhead, just like Jesus, would be with them, but not just with them, but he actually would be within every believer. To a greater degree, the presence of God would be experienced. And the reason it would be better is because, again, Jesus, when he was on the earth as God in flesh, was limited to a human body, which means he was limited to locality, which means that if he was in Galilee, he couldn't be in Judea at the same time. If he was in Nazareth, he couldn't be in Bethlehem at the same time because he was in a human body. But when Jesus ascends back into heaven, now spiritually, supernaturally, by the Spirit of God, the presence of Christ, the person of God, the Spirit, can be with all believers all over the globe and can be with God's people everywhere and at all times to a much greater degree and able to provide spiritual help and assistance for people to live for the Lord. And Jesus is saying, this is going to be to your advantage because now the helper will come and he'll be with each and every one of you no matter where you're at to help you live for the Lord, to walk in the power of God, to serve Jesus. He'll help you to continue my ministry, Jesus was saying, on this earth. That's why the ministry of Jesus could be greater, not in its quality, but greater in its quantity and its extent. Because now the Spirit of the Lord would be with every believer all over, helping the ministry of the Lord to expand to a much greater degree, to empower Christians to testify of Jesus and to reach the unsaved world. 
Again, this is what Acts 1.8 was about when Jesus there said this, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This was the advantage Jesus was saying. Listen, he's saying, boys, we can travel around and we can testify here in Israel little by little and place by place and be in one place at a time. But he says, well, my spirit comes upon the follower of Christ and the spirit baptizes and empowers a believer with his dunamis dynamic power. He says, you will all be witnesses of me starting in Jerusalem and then it will spread to Judea and then out to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see happening today, 2000 years later. We're all over the globe. There are witnesses of Christ empowered with his ability to reach people that are not saved. And let me just say this by way of application. Isn't it a wonderful thing truly to realize that though Jesus calls us to be his followers, that with his call to be his follower, that he also gives us a promise attached to that of the assurance that his Holy Spirit will be our helper to empower us to live the Christian life, that he doesn't just say, follow me, and I hope you can put a good effort in. But he says, follow me, and if you follow me, my promise to you as my followers, you can be assured there's going to be a helper that is going to enable you to live for the Lord, that's going to enable you to serve the Lord and to minister on his behalf. How wonderful, what great news this morning that you and I don't somehow have to supply strength on our own or human effort or power, listen, to be a good Christian. Oh, I'm just, I'm really trying to be a good Christian. Good luck with that. I'm going to try and be a good Christian as if somehow we don't need Christ to be a Christian. It's the whole concept of Christianity. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's letting the life of Christ live through you, letting the power, the helper of the Holy Spirit enable you. You're not supposed to be a good Christian. You're supposed to learn. I'm supposed to understand how, as I grow in my relationship with the Lord, how to yield to the helper of the Holy Spirit in my life, how to yield and rely upon the help of the Spirit of God to serve the Son of God to the glory of God by letting the Helper empower me and understanding what that means, letting Him work in my life and ultimately through my life. And that particularly is true in regards to what Jesus is going to talk about next, which is reaching the unsaved world and telling people who don't know about Christ in the unsaved world how they can have a relationship with Him as we do and how they might be saved. So regarding the Spirit's help and empowerment to speak to those, to reach those in a ministry advantage, that's why Jesus then goes on, verse 8, in his next breath to say this, and when he, notice the person of the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So here we begin to see the primary ministry of the Spirit, not necessarily subjectively in the Christian, though he does work in us as well in many ways, but this is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst the unsaved world, 
amongst people who do not yet have a relationship with Jesus. He says this is what his ministry will be in the world, the unsaved, is he will convict the world. He will convict the world. That word convict there is a, a legal term. It speaks of presenting or exposing facts to convince of the truth. It's basically what takes place in a judicial setting when a prosecuting attorney does their job well. What their role is, is in a criminal case to get the criminal or the offender convicted, to expose facts, to reveal the truth, to indicate that offender's guilt and to convince people that the law has been broken. And to convince that individual, if they're willing to admit it, that they did break the law. And to get them to be convinced by the exposure of truth that what they have done is wrong. It's a violation of the law and they're guilty and therefore also deserving of the punishment attached to the crime. That's what a prosecuting attorney does. And when a prosecuting attorney does that successfully, it's called what? A conviction. This is the idea here, proving error, proving guilt. Let me explain by way of personal application. A person's conscience, we all have one of those things on the inside. It's that moral compass that God created inside every single person. Now, whether we look at the moral compass or not or pay attention to it, that's a difference. Sometimes we pay attention to the moral compass within, other times we just disregard it and do whatever we want. But God's created a, a, a moral compass, a conscience within every one of us. And your conscience inside of you functions, listen, like an internal judge ruling in the inner man. And the spirit of God, like a prosecuting attorney, seeks to bring conviction to the conscience of a person in the same way a prosecuting attorney would present the facts of a case to a judge to make a rendering and a decision to say, yes, by what you've presented, it's clear there is guilt here and there is a deserving of, of punishment, a sentence. So the Holy Spirit powerfully works inside the life of a person's conscience to expose their guilt, to indicate to them their error and, and prove to people what's true about them of their own spiritual condition before a holy God. And particularly Jesus says here, he convinces people of the truth of their guilt as it pertains to personal sin their lack of righteousness before a righteous God and holy God and as well the judgment is something that they must face he says he convicts the world verse 8 it says it there first of all of sin and the word sin just means to miss the mark of perfection it was a term used to describe when you aimed at a bullseye no matter how hard you always tried to hit the bullseye eventually you could try your best you're going to fail you're going to miss at some point that was a sin you've missed the mark you tried to hit perfection but you failed like everybody ultimately fails and this is what sin is a reference to morally and spiritually though we try we all still fail we all make mistakes we sin, we miss the mark of perfection. The Bible says in Romans 3, all the world is guilty before God for we've all sinned and fallen short. And the Spirit seeks to convict the world of this reality. He seeks to convict the world. Secondly, it says there of righteousness and righteousness means living in a way that's right or acceptable before God who is a holy and a righteous God and meeting his standards. And Romans 3 says as well, there is none righteous. No, not one. 
And Jesus says thirdly in verse 8 that he convicts the world of judgment. And judgment is basically facing the sentence that you deserve for your guilt or for your error. And the Bible tells us in uh, Hebrews 9 verse 27 as it's appointed for men to die once but after this the judgment. You get one death and then you are judged and evaluated before your creator to whom you give account for for your life. Now the Bible tells us in Timothy that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. The will and desire of God in his love is that all the world, every person would be saved. Yet the reality is this. Listen, there can be no spiritual conversion without spiritual conviction there cannot be spiritual conversion of a soul unless there is first spiritual conviction a person must experience conviction inside of themselves first if they're ever going to be open to seeking conversion for their soul is the solution now what does conviction look like when it happens when a person's under the conviction of the spirit what does that look like? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we have it portrayed well, I believe. Peter is there, and he's testifying to a crowd about Jesus and their sinful condition and their need to look to Jesus for forgiveness and to be saved from the wrath of God against their sin. And it says this. Listen very clearly. Acts 2, it records this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But again, that was conviction. Peter was just speaking about Jesus, speaking about spiritual truth to them. And when they heard it, the power of the spirit of God was moving upon the hearts of the people listening as the word of God was going into their lives and it says they were cut to the heart. Their heart was, was, was rent open. It was like something was stabbing them in the heart within and they sensed the reality of their condition and it caused them to do what? Sense their guilt and, and to look for a What do we do? How do we respond to God? What do we, that's conviction. When a person has an inward sense of being gripped in their heart stirred in their heart by God it's something that cannot be done by human coercion but something that happens as the spirit speaks to the conscience of a person and a person must be personally convicted and convinced in their heart of their condition of their spiritual condition before God in order to see a need to turn to Jesus for salvation listen think of this logically if a person doesn't have any sense of personal guilt or fear of punishment, why would they seek help? If a person has no sense that I'm a sinner or I'm guilty or I've offended God or someday I'm going to have to face judgment for the wrong things I've thought, said, or done in my life. If a person has no genuine sense that they need to be saved from something, why would they want to be saved? Why would they be interested in being saved? They must first experience conviction in their heart of their condition, which then motivates them and convinces them, I need to get saved. I need to be saved. 
and something needs to happen to resolve the condition of my life. That's why spiritual conviction conviction takes place, Jesus says, among the unsaved world to convict them of these realities. Now, he's going to expound further here exactly how the Holy Spirit does convict the world, particularly in regards to three areas. Look on with me, verse 9. He says he convicts the world, first of all, of sin because, Jesus says, they do not believe in me. So Jesus expounds now what he means by being convicted of sin. Now, often we hear sin, being convicted of sin, and we think of the specific sinful acts that we commit. I told a lie, or I stole something, or I had lust in my heart, or I, you know, I spoke or acted or behaved in a way that I know I shouldn't. And we think of the wrong things that we do in our thoughts or our words or our behaviors, the different things we've done that we know displease God. And though the Spirit does bring conviction in guilt, in our lives for our sins that we commit. Notice his primary ministry among the unsaved world of convicting them is not convicting people, listen, of their individual sins or their specific acts of sin. You shouldn't do this and you're really wrong because you do that. But his primary work of conviction is convicting people of sin singular he's trying to convict them of the reality of being sinful of being aware of their sinfulness before a holy god not the specific acts that's what we like to point out oh you're doing this and you shouldn't be doing that the spirit of god is trying to convince them of one thing you are a sinner you are sinful you are not righteous you are not good enough You are sinful before a holy God. And to get them to come to that reality and therefore, what would that make them do? I need a savior. I need someone to save me from my sinfulness before God. That's why the Spirit's primary effort, Jesus says, is convicting the world of sin. Look what he says, the text, because they do not believe in me. That's what Jesus attaches being convicted of sin. Because they do not believe in me. Because the greatest sin is not admitting your sinfulness and then accepting Jesus as the one who's the solution to save you from your sinfulness. That's the greatest sin. The greatest sin is unbelief towards Jesus as your Savior. It's refusing to admit that you need Jesus to save you. It's unbelief towards Him, never exercising your personal trust in Jesus to bring salvation to you because every person in the world is a sinner. The Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us. And we're under the wrath of God. But yet the Bible tells us the good news is the Father sent Jesus as the solution for our sinful condition. We've studied, we remember so familiar, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. So the greatest sin is not some act of sin. The greatest sin is unbelief toward Jesus Christ. Never recognizing, never admitting, let me change that because the Holy Spirit helps everybody to recognize it. Never admitting, acknowledging in faith, believing the truth 
that I am a sinner and God has provided a pathway to have my sins forgiven and to have access into heaven in a relationship with God and that is through Jesus Christ. So because we're sinful but God has sent Jesus to be the Savior, really, listen, only one issue remains. What is a person going to do with Jesus Christ in regards to being the Savior? Because the Bible says salvation is found in no other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Which means that whether we accept Jesus or we reject Jesus as our Savior for our own sinfulness is the singular issue that we will be eternally accountable for when we stand before God at the end of our life. That's the bottom line. The Bible says there is one exclusive way to come to God and that is through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Mediator. The Scripture says in 1 Timothy 2, there is one Mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Please, please do not misunderstand. When each soul stands before God, it is not the accumulation of their sins that is going to be the thing that ultimately affects their eternal destiny. God doesn't grade on a curve. Let's get over that falsehood. It's not the accumulation of a person's sins that ultimately affects their eternal destiny. It is the rejection of Jesus as the provision for their sins that will consign a person as an eternally damning sin to hell. That alone. That is the sin God's made away. It's the sin of not admitting you're sinful and not admitting that Jesus is the Savior and that you need Him to save you. To refuse to believe and respond to that truth is to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit that's convincing and convicting your heart of that reality and therefore to not believe that constitutes what the Bible refers to as the unpardonable sin that consigns a person to eternal judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. One thing, the blasphemy against the Spirit. What's the blasphemy against the Spirit that will not be forgiven? The Spirit of God saying, you're a sinful person and you need Jesus Christ to save you. And that's the only way that you can get into heaven. And as the Spirit of God testifies that and testifies that and testifies that and testifies that and testifies that to a person's dying breath inside of them, if they refuse and blaspheme and quench and reject that testimony of the Spirit to the hour of their death, that is an unpardonable sin that consigns a person to eternal judgment. Stephen, when he was preaching to the religious leaders in the book of Acts about their rejection of Jesus, said to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Again, this is something that becomes an issue where Jesus is working in this world by the power of the Spirit and the Spirit of God is wrestling with people's hearts. And he's wrestling with people regarding Jesus of their own sinfulness, their need to be saved by him. And he's continually working in people trying to convince them, you need Jesus. I'm a pretty good person. No, you still need Jesus. I'm what you don't understand. I'm, I'm kind of religious. I go there every week. I bring my Bible along. No, but you've never 
invited Jesus into your life. You've never personally acknowledged to God, I'm a wretched sinner and I deserve to go to hell, God, unless Jesus saves me. God, I need Jesus to save me. And this testimony of the Spirit of God takes place and some will humble themselves and believe upon the Lord and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But the sobering reality is this. A person can also resist the testimony of the Holy Spirit and can choose to refuse what the Spirit of God is saying to them in their life. So the Spirit, what's He doing in the world? He's trying to convict the world, Jesus says, of sin because people do not believe in me. Also, he says, secondly, verse 10, he's trying to convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So the second way the Spirit's convicting the world specifically of righteousness, Jesus says, is because I'm going to the Father and you're not going to see me anymore. Now, interesting. Why does Jesus connect here his ascension back into heaven to be with the Father to righteousness. Well, here's very simply why. Because Jesus' ascension back into heaven declared once and for all the standard that God would accept for access into heaven. As Jesus, as a man, lived a sinless, righteous life when he died and then his life was over, his ascension back into the presence of God once for all was God's way of declaring that is what I require for acceptance into my presence. That is what I require is the standard to have access into the presence of God and to be right with God. Jesus' entry back into heaven as a man validated once for all perfection is the standard. Total righteousness. Complete sinlessness. Now, it shouldn't take you long to figure out that means we got a problem. We all have a problem because we can look around us in our lives and yeah, some people may be more righteous than others, but none of us are righteous when measured against Jesus. None of us meet up to that standard of what God requires for his acceptance and approval into his presence. The problem, we all know it, is people make the mistake of measuring themselves by their own standards. And they have their own ideas of what makes them morally right. And I mean, this is my standard of righteousness. And I mean, in comparison to this, and I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I may be a drug dealer, but I always give a fair deal. I mean, I never short anybody. I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I mean, compared to the other ones, man, I, I roll clean. If I say you're getting this much, I don't, I don't change the amounts. And, and, and people literally, right, they have their own standards of righteousness. Well, I only sleep with girls that I love. Right? I mean, and we have these ideas that we create our own standard of righteousness. What we think is required to be right or acceptable or approved in some ways and, and even sometimes thinking through our religious works we can be righteous before God but we're relying on the fact that we're okay, we're a pretty good person, what? In comparison to others in the world. And we look around us and, and listen, it's not, you don't have to look real far to find somebody you can be a little better than. And we make this horrible mistake. The problem is we're measuring with the wrong standards. We're not to measure ourselves against other people because that's not how God measures us. God is going to measure us off of the life of the perfection and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when measured against the perfection of Jesus, which is the standard and requirement to get into heaven, we all, no matter how hard we try, we all fall drastically short and are greatly deficient. Isaiah 64 says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
That means this, even on my best day, when I tried the best and I have the best performance that I've done so much right, that still, in comparison, is like being dressed in filthy, stained garments before a holy and a righteous and a perfect God. It's just not good enough. So the Spirit works to convict people who are settled in a self-righteous attitude, thinking that they're good enough. Because they do a little religious things and, and they're a little better than their neighbor next door. And, and the Spirit of God is trying to convict people, listen, you lack what's needed so you're not good enough on your own. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you behave, no matter how religious you become, He tries to convince people, the Spirit's wrestling with people to make them realize God's requirement of righteousness is perfection and you're not good enough on your own. I can't provide what's necessary to make myself right with God. I have a problem that needs to be solved and the Holy Spirit convinces us the only way to get that resolved is to attain a standard of righteousness from someone else. That we need the gift of Jesus' righteousness. The great exchange. Where thereby I give him all of my sin and my filth and he takes it away and removes it when he forgives me and then he gives to me as a gift his righteousness, which makes me acceptable then to be right in God's presence. And that we need this experience in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is trying to convict and convince the world of this spiritual reality that your righteousness on your own is not good enough, but you must receive a gift of the righteousness of Jesus to make you have acceptance into heaven. And then thirdly, in verse 11, he speaks of one other way the Spirit convicts the world, and that is of judgment, Jesus says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, we've talked before already that this term Jesus uses, the ruler of this world, is a reference to the devil, of Satan, the one who is the unseen spiritual person working in the realm of the world, the fallen, unsaved world, to deceive and to control. Yet, at what point was the ruler of this world, the devil, judged, if you would? Well, at the cross of Christ, the Bible tells us. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the principalities and powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. See, Jesus in his life and then in his crucifixion and resurrection defeated and dethroned the power and the authority of Satan, the ruler of this world. He broke his power. He stripped him of his ability to have the control he once did. And so therefore now the ruler of this world has been, if you would, judged. His sentence hasn't been carried out yet. He has a limited time left and then he's going to be cast into his eternal sentence, which is the lake of fire, the Bible says. But he's been judged for his evil and his rebellion. And there's coming a day when his judgment will be carried out and his sentence will cause him to be cast into the lake of fire. And what Jesus is trying to convey here, if that defeat is true of the ruler of this world, and if the ruler of this world was judged and is going to face the sentence for his error, what hope does the common person in this world have in regards to their rebellion against God? If the ruler with all of his power and authority, if his rebellion was judged and he will face judgment for it, then what Jesus is saying, certainly there's no hope of escaping judgment for sinful people 
in rebellion to God. And let us never forget spiritual and eternal judgment is a very real thing. It is a very real thing. The Bible tells us that all those not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of outer darkness, where judgment for the sin and rejection of Christ will be experienced forever and ever, and only Jesus can save us from that wrath to come. Now, the ruler of this world being judged also brings a word of good news, which is this, is that there's deliverance from Satan's power over sin and control over our lives. And Jesus says the Spirit is trying to convict and convince the world as well that because the rule of this world has been judged, there's deliverance now. There's availability to be freed from anything in your life and the Spirit wants people to know in this world if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Because the judge, the ruler of this world that maybe ruled over your life for a while and kept you in some sin or bondage or life-dominating habit and you thought, how could I ever be set free from this? Jesus says, you can be set free. You can be set free. Because there is a greater ruler and a greater king who has overruled that ruler and can now set you free. And the Spirit of God is working in this way which reminds us of this, as I said at the beginning. It is not our responsibility to convince people of spiritual matters in their lives. It is our responsibility to present the truth and let the Spirit of God convince and let the Spirit of God convict. We have to, ladies and gentlemen, have faith, truly faith, that the Spirit of God can accomplish the work of God in people's hearts. That's liberating to me. <laughs> to know that I can trust and let the Spirit of God work. And when that happens, it's powerful and it's life-changing and it's permanent because he did it. And it was something that happened within. And we have to trust and let the Spirit do this and be careful at times we're not trying to manipulate or getting really in God's way. And let's realize this as well for those of us who are Christians this morning. Though we're saved, the Spirit's conviction doesn't stop in our lives. He continues now by dwelling within us to bring conviction in our hearts regarding sin in our personal lives as a Christian when we start to err off track or do what may be displeasing to the Lord. And the biggest mistake, please hear me, the biggest mistake a follower of Christ can make is to start to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit is to start to disregard the conviction of the Spirit of God in relation to something that we may be doing in our life or have done in our life that we know is not pleasing to the Lord. When you sense conviction from the Holy Spirit, you need to respond to it. You need to confess, which means to accept and take ownership and cut out the excuses. Say, Lord, I'm convicted. What I've been doing is not right. It's wrong. And to confess it to the Lord and receive and ask for his forgiveness and his cleansing and perhaps even as James says, confess your trespasses one to another and say, would you pray for me that God would heal me and deliver me from this because what I've been doing, I know it's not right and I want to stop. And that's called repentance, which means you acknowledge it and then you change. You change. You turn from it. 
Let us be sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit. Let's stand together and pray, why don't we, as we turn our time back over to the Lord and worship.